0: Now, most of my Christian life, the, the headway that I make is kind of slow. It's plodding. As you hear me say so often, it's two steps forward and one step back. I think that's the way that it is for most people, and I think that's the way that God has ordained it to be so. And yet there are certain events and certain moments and certain decisions that we make that are are almost like well it propels us forward significantly in our spiritual lives it's not something that happens daily it's not even something that happens monthly but there are certain times in life when we make particular decisions when it seems like god turns on the afterburners and he takes us to a new place in our spiritual lives for me that was the first time was when i was baptized I was saved at the Park Avenue Baptist Church in Titusville, Florida, led to Christ by one of the pastors there, and then not long after I was converted to faith in Christ, I was, I was baptized. Uh, we have a tendency in evangelical circles, that is the circles we run in, conservative Christianity, to, uh, to downplay the importance of, of baptism. Baptism. Sometimes people will go on months or even years after they've been genuinely converted before they're baptized by immersion. Sometimes I think maybe we're at that place because we're responding, we're reacting to to a heresy that circulates in our day called baptismal regeneration, You might be wondering, Pastor, what in the world is baptismal regeneration? Well, baptismal regeneration teaches you are not saved until you are baptized. And often they will go to passages like Acts chapter 2, where Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And they will point to the prominent role that baptism has there, and appropriately so. And yet, I think there's probably none of us that believe in baptismal regeneration, and yet that verse is in the Bible. And so if we were to get into a discussion with with someone that believed in baptismal regeneration, we'd have to say something about that verse. What would we say about that verse? Because Silvana has just read to us today, about the baptism of Jesus. And in fact, that's what we're going to talk about today, the baptism of Jesus Christ. Uh, The significance of baptism, the importance of baptism, the role that baptism plays in uh, the spiritual life of a person. Well, what any verse means, it can only mean what it does in its contextual setting. That is, you can't take a verse by itself, take it out, and cause it to mean something it doesn't mean in the rest of that book or in the rest of Scripture. So they would point to Acts chapter 2, and they would say, "Well, well, what do you do about that verse? And the first thing I would say is, well, let's look at the rest of the book of Acts. Let's see if in the rest of the book of Acts, if when the gospel is preached that it's faith and repentance, or is it faith and baptism? Is it faith, repentance, and baptism? You you go through the book of Acts, and you'll see that salvation is by faith alone. A person receives the gospel message. Then I would say, well, let's go to the letters of Paul and and the rest of the, the New Testament writings, and let's see what Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors have to say about Baptism and what they have to say about the gospel and what they have to say about salvation. Well, Paul says very clearly we're saved by faith apart from the works of the law. In Ephesians, he says you're saved by grace through faith, and that's a gift from God. So, what we do when we're saved is we're receiving God's gift of salvation. Then I would say, well, let's go, to the, let's go to the Gospels. For example, let's go to the, the thief on the cross. Was the thief on the cross saved or not saved? What Did he go to heaven that day or not go to heaven that day? When Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, was he with Jesus or was he not with Jesus the moment that he died? And the truth of the matter is, he was with Jesus. He was with with Jesus that day in paradise, which is another way of referring to to heaven. So baptismal regeneration is a heretical teaching that you're not saved until you are baptized. No, we're saved when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're saved when we, we put our confidence in Him. Now, our tendency is because of the one extreme to go to the other extreme. Baptism isn't very important. Baptism isn't very significant. Well, I want to turn our attention now to Luke chapter 3. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Don't underestimate the significance of baptism. Jesus didn't. Uh, Baptism cannot be an insignificant act if Jesus himself were baptized. Now what's difficult in this passage is the fact that Jesus is being baptized by John and last week John was doing a baptism for the repen- of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And so at times people are a little bit confused, in fact maybe a little bit embarrassed. Why was Jesus baptized for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin? because all of us believe that Jesus was sinless. He had no original sin. That is, when he was conceived in Mary's womb while a virgin, he did not have Adamic sin. He did not have the sin of Adam. He he was not a sinner by birth, and he was not a sinner by choice. He never sinned. He, He never had a sinful thought. He never committed a sinful act. He didn't even have a sinful emotion. The Bible unambiguously, forthrightly, and directly declares Jesus Christ Be sinless. In Matthew's gospel, and Matthew describes the baptism of Jesus, Mark describes the baptism of Jesus, Luke describes the baptism of Jesus, that's how important it was. Not every event is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even fewer events in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the baptism of Jesus is found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, it's found in Luke, and John. Alludes to it. He makes reference to it without actually describing Jesus being baptized. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew Matthew recounts an exchange between John the Baptist and Jesus that, that Luke doesn't mention, nor does Mark. In fact, John was hesitant to baptize Jesus. John didn't want to baptize Jesus. John the Baptist thought it inappropriate for him to baptize Jesus. In fact, this is what Matthew wrote. John tried to prevent him, that is, Jesus, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Allow it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, What does he mean by that? He means this is God's plan, this is God's way, this is God's will for me. For me, not to submit to baptism would be to go against God's plan for me. It would be to disobey God. I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. People might misunderstand it. People might have mistaken ideas about it. People might even think less of me for doing it. But God's plan was for Jesus to be baptized. Why? Because his final words to his disciples are going to be, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all, the nation, of all the nations, baptizing them. That is the first step in disciple-making is baptism. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the message of discipleship begins with the act of baptism. So Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his ministry to, to emphasize its importance And then the last words that he speaks in Matthew's gospel are make disciples, baptizing them in the name of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, But in another sense, as Jesus is being baptized, he is foreshadowing his mission. A few weeks ago, I, I baptized Dezuc, and I typically have this pattern when I baptize people buried with Christ into death, raised to walk in newness of life. You see, Jesus' baptism foreshadowed his death, burial, and resurrection. When he was immersed into the Jordan River, it was symbolic of his death and burial in a borrowed tomb. Being brought up out of the water was symbolic that God would raise him from the dead. That's exactly what happens to every person when they become a Christian. When they become a Christian, the old is gone, the new is come. They're new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. They are dead. They've been buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Every time a believer is baptized, they are making a confession that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm following the example of Jesus, I'm following the command of Jesus, and I am an illustration of the gospel message. And so Jesus' baptism, it not only foreshadowed his own death, burial, and resurrection, but it also is a picture of the gospel. That's why Philip in Acts chapter 8, as he goes into the area known as Samaria. This is what Luke wrote about Philip's ministry in Acts 8. But when the Samaritans believed Philip as he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were being baptized. So they're putting their faith in Christ. They're being saved. And the evidence of salvation is baptism. And so baptism is one of the first acts of obedience. Sometimes we're very hesitant to be baptized. We don't like being in front of people. Uh, We might might be a little fearful of actually even being submerged in water. Uh, But it is an act of obedience, and it is a gospel declaration. And so let me encourage you today if you have never been baptized by immersion, follow the example of Jesus and obey the command of Jesus. Because baptism is very important. And as I mentioned to you, it was like a, it was like a jet fuel to me spiritually, and it really propelled me forward. Don't make more of baptism than it is, but certainly don't make less of baptism. Than it is. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus didn't do life without prayer, nor should we. That is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as I've mentioned, all describe Jesus being baptized. But only Luke says that Jesus was praying while he was being baptized. You've probably read this passage many, many times and never picked up on the idea that Luke and Luke alone. Says that while Jesus was praying, heaven was open. Matthew doesn't mention Jesus praying. Mark doesn't mention Jesus praying while being baptized, but Luke certainly does. And in fact, Luke goes out of his way to to help us understand that at every important moment in the life of Jesus, he's praying. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, emphasizes Jesus as a man of prayer. In fact, you could say Jesus didn't believe he could possibly do life the way that God wants it done without praying. Well, we might wonder, well, why in the world would God incarnate, God the Son, have to live a life of prayer in order to navigate life as the God-man? Well, there's a lot about prayer the incarnation, Jesus becoming a human being that is mysterious and and that we don't understand. One thing we do understand is Jesus prayed, and he prayed often, and Luke highlights it. For example, in chapter 5 and verse 16, only Luke tells us that Jesus often would go away to lonely places and pray. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, only Luke tells us that before Jesus chose the 12 apostles, he spent an entire night in prayer to God. You know, some decisions are so important, some decisions so consequential, some decisions so monumental that to make those decisions without saturating them in lengthy times of prayer are not are not decisions that we should make why would jesus need to pray all night before he chose the 12 if he is god incarnate we don't know but he did he spent the entire night praying the first thing he did in the morning was to call 12 apostles in chapter 9 verse 18 before jesus chose or before jesus asked the disciples Who do you say that I am? In chapter 9, verse 18, he prayed. He had been praying. Up to that time, none of his disciples had confessed him to be the Messiah, none of them had declared him to be the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. And what happens immediately before the very first time? They answer, you are the Messiah. He doesn't tell them. He asks them, who do you say that I am? They say, you're the Messiah. What is he doing? He's praying. What's he praying? Obviously, Luke wants us to understand he's praying that their minds would be opened and their hearts receptive to his messianic identity. Only Luke says that he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration to pray. Chapter 9, verse 28. Matthew mentions the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark mentions the Mount of Transfiguration. Only Luke says that he went up there to pray. In chapter 10, verse 21, we actually hear Jesus pray. That is, Luke records the actual words that Jesus prayed. And he says, Father, I praise you. So there's a prayer. Father, I praise you. But you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, but have revealed them to babes. We actually hear him praying. Chapter 11 and verse 1, his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray just like John the Baptist's disciples taught them to pray. You know, that's only in Luke's gospel. Only Luke has that. Only Luke tells us that in the upper room, Jesus told the disciples, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Uh, that would, the sifting of wheat, the separation of the wheat from the chaff was a violent act, as I've told you before. And so, it, it's, Satan is going to sh- shake you. He's going to shake you to the core of your being. But I've prayed for you, he says to Peter. I prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that when you return, strengthen your brothers. We might wonder what would have happened to Peter if Jesus hadn't prayed for him. Sometimes people dive into a church, they become a part of a church, and all of a sudden they're gone. And you begin to wonder, where are they? And what you find is they, they've gone back to an old way of living. They were never part of a group where there was people praying one for another. And Simon Peter had Jesus praying for him. In chapter 22, verses 40 and 46, only Luke says this twice. Matthew says it once, Mark says it once, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, pray that you you do not fall into temptation. That is, if you don't pray regularly, you're sinning. Because one of the means by which God protects us from sinning and falling into temptation is by prayer. The same is true in the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus has just very few requests that he delineates in the Lord's prayer. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So he says it twice as they get ready to go into the Garden of Gethsemane, pray that you enter not into temptation, that you don't fall into temptation. Then right before Judas arrives with with the uh, Roman soldiers and the religious leaders He says, pray that you do not fall into temptation. The very first words from the cross are a prayer. Luke's the only one that records these particular words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The very last words from the cross in Luke's gospel are a prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At every important moment in the life of Jesus, Luke describes him as praying. We need to become men and women of prayer and follow the example of Jesus. But Jesus knows we're weak. He knows we're busy. He knows we're easily distracted. He knows that that we primarily make prayer our last hope rather than our first choice. He knows that it's often a Hail Mary pass at the end of a game. So he he fills his word with promises to answer prayer, to inspire us to be people of prayer. Listen to John chapter 14, verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Listen to John 15, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Listen to John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Listen to John 16, 23, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, He will give it to you. Now, the key to all of this is John 15, 7. Let me read that to you again. If you abide in me or remain in me, and my words abide or remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. When you are in the Word of God, the Word of God shapes your heart, and your heart determines your prayers. And so as you read the Bible, the Bible takes shape in you, and that, can, and that determines the prayers that we pray. Maybe you're familiar with the name Corrie Ten Boom. I, I quote her quite often because she's one of the most substantial Christians in the 20th century. She survived a Nazi death camp, and you would have never been able to tell a tinge of bitterness or resentment because she allowed that experience to shape her into the image of Jesus rather than to embitter her. She, she put it this way. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? She has a way of putting things and, and putting them out there in a way that, uh, that we can understand them. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? That's Corey ten Boom. Let me quote someone a little less substantial and a little less famous, and that, and that is Bill Cook. Let me. Re- Intercession is war. To desire revival in the church or the salvation of loved ones without prayer is not to desire it much at all. Intercession is war. To desire revival in the church or the salvation of loved ones without prayer is not to desire it much at all. Out of all of this today, maybe the baptism of Jesus, the thing that we ought to take away the most is that Jesus was committed to prayer. And if I'm too busy to pray, I'm too busy. Uh, prayer isn't just relegated to a period of time in the, in the morning hours or in the evening hours or at lunchtime, depending upon what our life cycle is when we're able and to pray. That is, without that time, you'll find you don't pray without ceasing, but out of that time, pray that God helps you to become one who prays without ceasing. You'll never pray throughout the day if you don't pray at the heart of your day, whether it's morning, noon, or night. Jesus was a man of prayer. Let's follow his example and let's embrace his promises. The third thing I want you to notice is this, the redemption of the world is a Trinitarian mission. Let's join it. Did you notice the Trinity in the passage? I'm I'm sure that you did. God the Father speaks. We'll look at what He says in just a moment. God the Son is baptized, and God the Holy Spirit descends. We don't know anything that happened in the life of Jesus from the time He was 12 until His early 30s. At the age of 12, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, He got left behind in Jerusalem. His mother and father finally track Him down, and... and for the very first time we hear him speak, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? He goes back home to Nazareth and lives in obedience to his parents. The next thing we notice is about 18, 19, 20 years later, and here he is being baptized. It's the launching of his Messianic ministry. It is the beginning of his pathway to the cross. And what we see is the redemption of the world is a Trinitarian mission, beginning with the baptism of Jesus. God the Father speaks. Notice what God the Father says. You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. He brings together two Old Testament verses. The first is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 says, I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Psalm 2 was a Davidic psalm. Psalm 2 was a a psalm of coronation. It's a psalm that was sung and, and, and said at the coronation of a king. It's also a Messianic psalm. It's a psalm that means more than its own self in its own context. It's pointing forward. It's foreshadowing the true son, the true king, the greater David. And so God quotes Psalm 2-7, you are my son. And then Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42 is part of what's called the servant songs in Isaiah. These passages in this portion of Isaiah are about the suffering servant, about the suffering son, about the suffering Savior. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so he combines a psalm about the kingship of Jesus, a song, Isaiah, suffering servant song, about the suffering of Jesus. The suffering servant and the messianic king are the same individual. The one who will sit on an eternal throne is the one who will die on an old cross. His baptism declared him to be both king and king and Savior. And that's what God the Father says. God the Father speaks. God the Son is baptized. God the Spirit descends. You know, in these two little verses, there are several things that we find only in Luke's description. Another one is that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Only Luke says the Spirit descended in bodily form. Well, we've already seen how important the Holy Spirit is in the Gospel of Luke. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. When the angel Gabriel went to the little village of Nazareth and spoke to the young teenage girl Mary, he said, the the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how a virgin conceived a child. The virginal conception is the ministry of the Spirit in the life of the Virgin Mary. In the very next episode, Elizabeth and Mary, Elizabeth the mother of John the Baptist, Mary the mother of Jesus, they meet, and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and prophesies. In the next substantial passage, John the Baptist is circumcised and named, his father is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. Eight days after Jesus is born, he's taken into the Jerusalem temple to be circumcised. And there a man by the name of Simeon, who had been promised by the Spirit he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, is led by the Spirit into the temple precinct and there he sees the baby Jesus. How does he recognize Jesus as the Savior, the light of the Gentiles, and the hope of Israel when everybody else just sees a baby? Because the Spirit of God was at work in his life, and the Spirit of God filled his heart, and what captures our heart we see with our eyes. We see that the redemption of the world, it's a Trinitarian mission. The Son of God didn't hide away in heaven. The Son of God didn't build up big fences around his house to keep his neighbors out. The Son of God invaded a fallen world for the redemption of mankind, and the Son of God demands that you and I invade this fallen world with his message of the gospel for the redemption of mankind. I love the Sotos, the Sotos hurt me. Every time I'm with them, they've got somebody that they're sharing with, talking to, praying for. And God uses it in my life to convict me of sin. That I'm not more evangelistic than I am. They're super nice people. I don't know how the DeSoto's are, but I mean the people that they introduced me to. Super nice. And they love. They love Tino and Silvana. They could put up a fence around their house. They could put plant trees that would block the way. <laughs> They're sharing the gospel, and God uses it to convict me. That Jesus Christ came into the world of sinners to save sinners, and Jesus Christ has said to me, I'm sending you into the world of sinners. Share the message of the gospel, and I'll save them. There's a lot in these two verses Baptism, prayer, world evangelization. It may be that all, all three just are, are really being pressed in on you by the Spirit of God, or maybe just one of the three. Maybe you're here today and you've never followed the example of Jesus or obeyed the command of Jesus to be baptized by immersion, because that's the way that Jesus was baptized. He was baptized in the Jordan River. Maybe you need to speak to one of the pastors about being baptized. Maybe the second and the third, which always are convicting to me, the example of Jesus as a man of prayer and as an evangelist in a fallen world, hits you like it hits me every time. Intercession is war. If I want to see revival in the church, programs don't bring it about. The Spirit of God in answer to the prayer of God's people brings about revival in the church. And if there are people that I want to see saved, how much do I want to see them saved if I don't pray for them? Maybe you'll stop by one of the tables in either lobby about the St. Louis mission trip, Storyline Church, St. Louis, Missouri, starting church, starting a church, uh, share the gospel. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that as we study this passage, it's all about Jesus. It's all about what you're doing in him and through him as he relates to his heavenly Father and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Father, there's, a, there's plenty, of in, plenty in here for all of us. It might not hit all of us in just the same way because we're in different places. But Father, we need it. Please speak to us.